Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. There was perhaps only one place and time in all of history in which someone could convincingly, and looking back, perhaps correctly argue that the concept of homeland security would usher in a new era in art and architecture. That place was Germany. The year was 1911, and Hermann Mothesius was at the helm. While we have grown accustomed to hearing that a golden age will have been reached when art teachers get lobbyists and the military funds its next stealth bomber with bake sales, Mothesius recognized this schism in priorities and took it seriously to further a solution that, incredibly, bore fruit. Heading into the conclusion of his essay, Where Do We Stand?, the founder of the Deutsche Werkbund set before the next generation of European architects the overriding projects and underlying struggles of the next 60 years in design. In many ways, these goals would define that narrative and shape it with an intention that is often at great variance with what we are typically taught. Set out three objects in your mind's eye, good or bad or both, that you associate with modernist design. Arrange them as if you could count with ready-made miniature models of whatever examples you choose. Now, take a step back and look at what you've got. What single word most quickly comes to mind? If there is no one single word, then simply register the impression that this scene evokes in you and describe it. Turn your mental gaze aside for a moment, take a breath, and place the thought form in your mind. Look again, with extra credit to those listeners who anticipated my rhetorical trick and thought of form to start with. If you view modernism like most contemporary people do, form may not exactly have been the word you had in mind. Consider how you thought of modernism before and after introducing the concept of form and imagine this before and after as two different lights that you can alternately shine on your model set of architectural history by flipping a switch. Examine how these probably familiar, maybe trite, either beloved or abhorred objects seem different to you as you switch the two lights back and forth. This is an approximation to modern architecture as seen from the results of the 20th century, and conversely, from the values and imperatives of the movement's origins. When these are not fully accounted for, the errors usually assigned to the modern movement stand out for their seeming lack of rationalization. It is instructive to realize that much criticism of modern architecture that calls it to task on, for instance, a lack of attention to functionalism, as with the Seagram's building, or cost-efficient production in the case of the Kandinsky chair, 
is warranted. But the fact that these are all historically situated examples, and that the drivers behind their design should be also understood historically, cannot be neglected either. Many of the apparent conflicts or contradictions in modernism become untangled once its values and imperatives are considered. An anecdote that helps reveal the impact of this outlook is afforded us by Rainer Bannum in his Theory and Design in the First Machine Age, and if you read it, beware his oddly redacted translation of Where Do We Stand that makes Matasius sound like a Hobbesian, though the analysis is valuable. A story is told in the book of how a Bauhaus instructor, Moholinage, came across a former student, Wagenfeld. In discussing what the graduate had been up to, it turned out that he had been working for a glass company in Jena that made milk jugs. The initial product of perfectly cylindrical canisters, though, he had revised into teardrop-shaped containers, to which his erstwhile teacher protested, Wagenfeld, how can you betray the Bauhaus like this? We have always fought for simple, basic shapes, cylinder, cube, cone, and now you make a soft form against all we have been after. At the root of the argument, sharp as a T-square is form, that almost shapeless word, again. While Banham's analysis jumps in to state how Maholinage's exclamation would anticipate the future tenets of purism and the international style, he misses the point concerning Mutasius, whom he had elsewhere spent a chapter on. The line of Maholinage's attack filtered through Grotius's Bauhaus is in complete compliance with Mutasius's injunction to achieve a clarity of expression in the arts and crafts, with form as the bone of contention. Rightly or wrongly, Pythagorean solids were the avenue of preference, and beneath this realization that the imperative to form was, indeed, the leading light of modernism, past the lesser sparks of functionalism or production concerns, rests the contemporary challenge of confronting the 20th century's designed legacy on the right grounds. Banham's otherwise acute analysis that the exhortation to simple, solid forms is a through-line running from the Bauhaus to French purism and on to the international style, merely underscores Mutasius's influence. Regardless of if one wishes to perpetuate the benefits of modernism or correct its faults, failing to locate form at its heart will distract one from the target. Mutasius was aware that he was at the threshold of a new age, leading the charge against near-unfathomable problems. Having presented his imperative of clearly expressed form above all things, he would proceed to enact the plan of action for which Heimatschutz, homeland security, was the magic key.
He cites as great successes that those of a patriotic bent, whom he refers to as the Home Guard, had finally become aware of the enormous deficits in German architecture. Of course, the first step in recovery is admitting to the problem, and after what Matesius saw as 80 years of denial, this must have been a victory indeed for the Werkbund's PR office. Mutasius wished to see this newly grown plant of awareness grafted on to the body of architectural education. As before, he was eager not to get ahead of himself without first identifying the obstacles, anticipating, for example, that the minute design was checked into rehab, the public would want to pull the arts and crafts off the wagon. The masses would reach for Soothing Syrup 1830, retro-flavored ornament as folk remedy to cure the sick body of architecture. But since the popularization of art had already been attacked for its devaluation of it, he strategically skewered this position for its elitism. What was at issue here could not be whether art was popularized, but how this popularization was accomplished. He knew, of course, that his critics, with Loos and his colleagues at the Fackel newspaper amongst them, would never truly stand in the way of this, or only do so superficially since doing otherwise would go against the grain of their own publications. In what may seem to us an almost mulish wish to overcome a fundamental contradiction through sheer willpower, Matesius proclaimed that we can at the very least start something in architecture, popular in its nature and a social art, by using the principle of art for art's sake. With this, he stepped directly into the snare that Loos had accused him of falling for, broadcasting his supposed pollution of fine art with social use. Nor was this simply social art or craft, but the aestheticist godhead of art for art's sake itself. The effort to embrace this contradiction with the wish to somehow overcome it was tremendous, and would resonate through every rank of architecture for the rest of the century. According to Mutasius, this conjoining of the social and the pure arts was the province of the artist. It was certainly the task of the Werkbund, and Walter Grofius, who had opened his first firm the year prior, would one day insert it at the center of the Bauhaus Manifesto. Admitting to the complications that the presence of high art brought into the social project of architecture, Mutasius noted that, in recent times, art had radically changed direction every 15 years, more or less. Here arises the distinction between Stil und Mode, or style and fashion. 
categories which map directly onto our earlier discussion of Kultur and Zivilisation. While style indicates a native outgrowth of organically emerging order, fashion is meant as enforced and disperse top-down dictates. If architecture, as Mutesius argues, is a trade that prizes typical and lasting solutions, then a rule of ever-cycling fashion in which novelty is at a prime is detrimental to it. Reprising the rehabilitation metaphor, he admits that our mundane world has an addiction to fashion that inures it to the best values of art. This is the blindness he wishes to treat with his own special potion, an immiscible emulsion of fine and applied art, administered by Herr Dr. Dr. Artiste, the eternal return of the fashion cycle, as relentless as the seasons, and relentlessly aligned to them, was opposed through the implausible vaccine of a grand unified theory of the arts. Promptly circling back to national concerns, Mutesius wrote that Germany is the country whose work will be important to the development of Stil in the future. The state that cornered innovation would control the coming decades. Though Great Britain had laid the foundations for this, Germany now packed an admirable array of power and energy to resolve the confusion of the previous century's forms. If German industry was called to dominate the 20th century, the German arts felt fit to follow suit. Mutesius cautioned, though, that while artists had rejected the imitations of London's 1851 World's Fair, the German public had been all too ready to accept them. Cannily digging into the motivational magic of homeland security, he asked, If imitation is desired, and if demand for it is present, then why not follow the example of France? where the most distinguished epics of interior design are repeated over and over again. Here was a man who knew his audience, because nothing made the Wilhelmine heart beat faster than the itch to outperform the English while antagonizing the French. Playing upon nationalist sentiment and rhetoric, Mutesius framed international design like some sort of athletic competition, where the public and critical reception of the world's fairs and of various international exhibits would reveal which nation won the most gold medals. He actually wrote that, Great worth is staked upon this game in a conflict that would divide first the Werkbund, then the century, the race was on between the desire to produce the good and the anxiety to create the new. Overall, 
Mutasius's arts plus crafts approach stood in stark contrast to other concurrent opinions, specifically those of Fandefelde, who argued for the designer's individuality to inform and shine from the product. But Mutasius thought that the true artistic genius strived for type above individual expression. It proved an important insight when one considers that the coming decade's mania for beneficial standardization was entirely underpinned by this imperative. Type before individuality and solution over expression became the formulas leading towards that much-desired synthesis of arts and crafts, and the Appian way to the enduring victory of Stil over Mode, of Kultur over Zivilisation. Over several years, Motesius had developed a unique organization that contained artists, technicians, thinkers, and industrialists. If the synthesis was ever to be achieved, he thought, if this destructive conflict of good versus new could ever be resolved, it would be now and here. But he was also wise enough to know he did not have all the answers. Would a man so certain of exactly what needed to be done assemble an international team of rivals to an annual strategy meeting? Germany's influence notwithstanding, Mutasius may even have acknowledged the potential for further international development. The whole architectural buoyancy of the past 15 years has been only a matter of the Germanic peoples, but surely some favorable potential for development is still hidden. Yet it remained, in his view, to the special advantage of German culture that strictest and most exact of all peoples to be put to this task with benevolent military discipline as its fuel. In an era the perspectives of which are now so remote to us, a mention of military discipline would have maybe brought to mind before all else the melody of a John Philip Sousa march in a parade, and in Motasius's vision, the artist would get to play drill sergeant. As Loos had preached to the aristocrat, Motasius was not shy about the need to court the wealthy, though he was quick to remind all those present that they carried the categorical obligation to refine the public's need to make life more inward, thus making it spiritually rich. However, this is not possible without art and architecture is the chambermaid which offers transcendental form up to these higher needs. Promptly switching from high-flown philosophy to providing a plan of action for it, he stated that reform begins at home, and that it is only through the education of taste and through public instruction that Germany would be worthy to progress into this new age. Mutasius was, above all else, a man of praxis, 
for whom theory and application were as inextricable and intertwined as energy and matter. If Loos felt the Werkbund was ignoring the tides of history in its attempt to bring together the arts and crafts and to, in a sense, conflate them in matter and spirit, Mutasius may have been urging the recognition that spirit brings substance to matter. After all, what dregs would a century's worth of architecture be if all art drained from it? How would it feel to be surrounded by sheer utility and to consign whatever shreds of artistry were left within the edge of a frame? In reflecting upon the legacy of Motasius, switch on those two lights of present and past perspective and turn the view from your modernist diorama to what you interact with in your everyday. Use a Dyson Airblade hand dryer, step into an Apple store, or browse through the Crate and Barrel website. Notice the designer names that produce exclusive items for Target. Feel assured that any car's standardized replacement parts will fit and work just like the old, out of the box. Think about the concept of branding when you see that car's insignia, knowing an artist designed it. All of these details that run deep within our lives, so much so that we take them as a given, are indebted to the Deutscher Werkbund, and we remain convinced that any effective strategy for dealing with design problems today would do well to understand and to engage with what Mutasius outlined. Stay tuned next week as we explore the roots of the Bauhaus in the work of Mutasius's sometime ally and ideological rival, Henry van de Velde. Thank you for listening.